Please note that this episode on non-violent protest and the influence of Mahatma Gandhi in South Africa was recorded a few weeks ago. And if we recorded the episode uh, after the events that transpired in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng in South Africa, we would have probably had a very different conversation. But at the same time, we think that there are a lot of touch points between this episode and the current South African moment with regards to public assembly and protest. With this in mind, we might record a follow-up episode. But in the meantime, we are curious and excited to hear how you perceive the content of this episode in light of the most recent events. I'm Nicoline Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. day and welcome to another episode of Arid Podcast, the podcast where we look at cultural texts like artworks and movies and songs and poems and see what it can say about art and philosophy and how we can apply these topics of art and philosophy to current issues, questions and maybe even sometimes some personal ideas. And today we are talking about the concept of nonviolence and how Gandhi played a role in creating this concept and also how it links to South Africa. So today we are very, very fortunate to share with you our conversation with Professor Louise de Toy, who is an associate professor at the Department of Philosophy at Stellenbosch University. From a personal perspective, this has been a very special episode to record because Professor de Toy is my supervisor. I've been her student for like eight years now, so she really does bear with me. I'll quickly give you a brief overview of her bio because it is very extensive. She has a whole Prof. De Toy fan club because she works on such important and relevant topics within the field of philosophy. Her main research interest actually deals in the falls in the field of feminist political uh, philosophy. And she's interested in sexual violence, critical theory, political philosophy, philosophy and literature. And she's the author of a book called A Philosophical Investigation of Rape, The Making and Unmaking of the Feminine Self. She's also currently working on her second monograph with the title Sexual Violence and Political Transition. So she's done some phenomenal work on understanding sexual violence in the context of South Africa. She is currently, she was a fellow at STIAS, which is a research institute in Stellenbosch. And she was with a group that worked about Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, and the concept of nonviolence. So as you can see, her interests are <laughs> very broad, but basically Lou, I did my master's under Louise on Judith Butler, a feminist philosopher. And now from this project of Louise, we are writing an article together about where we compare the life of Mahatma Gandhi as a, as a philosopher, political philosopher of sorts, and Judith Butler. So in many ways, this discussion that you'll listen to today um, is informed by our project together. Um, so it's been a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of air out some of those ideas as we try and put it into 
words, academic words. So yeah, in short, that's Louise, but she is so much more and she has um, a lot of students who really admire her. So it's very special to be chatting to her. Yeah, so it was very special to me and a little bit intimidating because I remember Louise from first year philosophy. We had a module together. I think it was moral philosophy at the end of the year and I really loved that module I just remember really admiring her as a lecturer and being like captivated in her classes and it's so special to me because um, Jana and I connected like we've said before over philosophy and um, visual studies which is an art subject we had at the art department together so Louise's subject was one of the topics that Jana and I definitely studied together in Nemisha or Minerva or or somewhere on campus and kind of started forming our friendship through that. So indirectly, Louise had a very formative role in the start of ERIT, like most of our other lecturers we admired. And therefore, it's really, really special to have her on here today. I would just like to say that there is something to say for three white women speaking about the concept of nonviolence in connection to, to protest. So just to frame ourselves again and remind you that this podcast is by no means prescriptive and we don't mean to, to judge or lay down any laws or um, create any kind of concrete answers or facts or bullet points of this is how it's supposed to be done. We're really airing a lot of ideas around protest and current protests in this podcast, um, but we are talking from our perspective and basically just using this lens of nonviolence to see how we can understand protest and mass movements and changing things through protest. I also think it's worth noting, just a flag before you listen, is that Louise has done enormous amount of research on uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who is a, a controversial figure in many ways. Uh, people have accused him of many things. Um, some people might not see how he relates to South Africa, but he has an enormous history. He's part of our history in South Africa. So I think it's just worth noting that a lot of what you'll hear today uh, gives that additional context, but this is not the kind of academic output. So I'll let you know once our article is finished and published yes, and then maybe you can read more. <laughs> It was quite a long conversation and it, w it was over Zoom, so there might be some technical glitches, but you can look forward to us discussing some of Nicolene's artworks again. We spoke about the notion of self-care in re relation to protests and nonviolence, and um, also a lot about the spiritual underpinnings of, of Gandhi and his contribution to nonviolence. So, yeah, we hope you enjoy episode 14 with uh, <laughs> Professor Louise de Doy. Louise, <laughs> welcome to Erin Podcast. We are very, very excited to have you here today. Uh, Louise and I are sitting together and we are on Zoom with Nicoline. So today's conversation, we want to talk about Gandhi. Um, you and I are working a bit on Gandhi and Judith Butler together. Um, but I want to start off by just asking you, how did you become interested in Gandhi mm. as a feminist philosopher in Stellenbosch or in South Africa? Well, that's one of those wonderful surprises that come with academic life. <laughs> I would never have turned to Gandhi out of my own, you know, by myself, I think. But I was, um, in 2018, I think it was, I was part of a, 
a research project at Princeton's Center for Theological Inquiry. And the topic there was religion and violence. And it was, we were a set of research fellows and we basically looked at the role of religion in violence. So the assumption was that religion propagates violence, that it intensifies violent conflicts, and basically that the problem of violence can be largely attributed to religion. And then one of the fellows there, Wolfgang Palaver, who's a um, theologian from Innsbruck, he said, but he's also interested in looking at the opposite perspective, which is to ask what role can religion play in the diminishment of violence? So what resources are there in religious insights to address the problem of violence as a human problem? Because he, he resists this idea of scapegoating religion <laughs> for violence. He says non-religious people are also violent. <laughs> um, so, so, so then he introduced us to Gandhi already there in Princeton. He mentioned him as an example and as someone that he's very interested in, as someone who took his spiritual and religious insights into the domain of politics and resistance and revolution, really, but in a nonviolent way. So um, at that time, I said to the fellows there that th there's this wonderful place called Stias in Stellenbosch, <laughs> the Institute for Advanced Study, and there's an option to, to, to apply. And then we, four of us, four of the eight that were there, decided to collaborate on... Um, Gandhi, but then specifically from the perspective of nonviolence and religion. So, okay. so, so how can Gandhi help us to think about the nonviolent potential that lies in religion? And there was an added um, dimension to this because they knew that Gandhi had developed these ideas of satyagraha, which means the force of love or the force of truth or nonviolent resistance, that he developed them originally in the old Transvaal Republic. Um, he already moved to the old Transvaal in the 19th century um, and he lived there for, I think, 21 years. And it was in conflict with Jan Smits and <laughs> Paul Krier that Satyagraha was developed. So, so it's not alien to South Africa and that makes it very fascinating. So we also went on a field trip, so-called, <laughs> to Durban to see where Gandhi had established his first ashram um, in Phoenix um, Township. So we were there, we met his granddaughter, Ella Gandhi, and um, yeah, we were, we were also became very interested then in what was the reception of Gandhi in South Africa specifically, you know, to what extent was he taken up by the South African um, liberation struggle, um, struggle for non-racialism and, and that whole story. So it was fascinating to actually trace his footsteps a little bit in Durban and surroundings. So, so he was active both in Durban and in Johannesburg and Pretoria. In Johannesburg, he had a settlement called um, Tolstoy Farm <laughs> because he was a great fan of Tolstoy and also a friend of Tolstoy and they had corresponded also. And in um, Durban, he'd set up this Phoenix settlement. So, um, and people say if Gandhi had not been in South Africa in his youth, if he had just grown up in India, he would never have been able to establish Satyagraha because Indian society is too regimented and strict. Um, so, so ironically, he had to come to racist colonial South Africa to develop 
to, to develop more freely his practice of political resistance. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating issue. Sure. And so these, these guys came to Stellenbosch, it was three of them, one from Groningen in the Netherlands, one from Innsbruck in Austria, one from uh, Jerusalem in Israel, and the four of us tried to figure out what Gandhi still has to teach us today. Um. <laughs> yeah, like the Gandhi, what we really know about Gandhi is so limited, even as South Africans. Um, think about through school history or whatever so I have to admit that most of this information was new when learning about Gandhi and Gandhi's influence on like Nelson Mandela and the apartheid. Yeah I think he's become a little bit of a cartoonish figure by now you know people just think of how weirdly he dressed and of his asceticism, his vegetarianism, his fasting mm. or people think only of him as a spiritual being um, in, in isolation from his political work. They forget that he liberated India from British colonialism, you know, that his Satyagraha was extremely effective. Um, or, yeah, so, so I think we've largely forgotten his legacy um, also in South Africa, uh, or maybe even especially in South Africa. We forget how influential he was upon figures like Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he was extremely influential in the 20th century, but we've largely yeah. forgotten about him. And I want to ask if you can speak a little bit more about Satyagraha. So what, what did it entail and how, when you said it was effective in India, how did the practice or the, um, the elements of it actually work in real life? So the concept of it and then how we practiced it and how it had an influence. That's a very interesting question, Nicolene. Um, actually, it's almost the other way around. You ask about the concept and then its application. Gandhi was so strange in this respect that he, um, he calls his one autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. Mm. So he never um, separated praxis and theory from one another. He said, I live my life and in doing these things, I discover the truth. <laughs> So, so it's not as if he first was a scholar and then tried to apply it. So if you really want to understand Satyagraha, you actually have to read his um, very, I found it very entertaining. It's a, it's a rather small book, but it's called Satyagraha in South Africa that he himself wrote. Um, and it's the story of how this movement, this concept was born out of struggle. So, so there was a whole... Um, lead up so, um, to, to the final um, crystallization of the concept Satyagraha. So they'd been busy and active and resisting and fighting for some time before they, they realized a new, what, as he says, a new principle had come into being. And we need to name it something, <laughs> you know. So, wow. Yeah, so that's interesting how the practice preceded the theory. Um, and then uh, he was actually spurred to, to call it something because other people started calling their movement passive resistance. And he said, number one, the first problem with that is it's an English term and we are fighting the English here, <laughs> so back <laughs> off. <laughs> and secondly, it's not passive. Um, it's definitely not passive. So the first time he tried to, to, to conceptualize it, to theorize it, he was actually spurred on to do that 
by the need to, to distinguish himself from passivity. So it's a very active principle, he says. He says it's, he even says it's an extremely active principle. So it is something that um, really exists in a way of life, in a way of acting. Um, so that's maybe the first part of the answer to your question. Uh, Jana, do you want to come in here? I don't know. I mean, talk all the time. <laughs> no, but I'm learning as you speak as well. Um, and I think you are well equipped to do so. So, I mean, I'm also curious, like the part about how he defines it as soul force. Mm. And maybe you can mm. speak more about like the most the virtue, the virtues that he connects with, mm. what was the, of the term and the practice of it yeah all right so so he describes in that story uh, yeah and what i think the south african audience will find interesting is how the boer women the, the women in the camps during the anglo-boer war or the south african war or whatever you want to call that war the second um liberation war um the boer women were for him an, an important um example or exemplar of satyagraha <laughs> Um, also, the suffragettes um, he found very interesting. So it's um, it's for me not by accident that it's women's political actions that inspired him, and we can talk about that for a long time. But I think there's something, something feminine, something feminist, something care ethics related to how he understands the force of nonviolence. But, but that just as an aside. But um, yeah, so they started to um, try to think, what is this new principle that came into being? And then he launched a competition in his journal and he said, people must come up with names for this thing. <laughs> what shall we call it? What we do in Transvaal, the way we resist. Um, and by that time, they'd already started to um, do mass or collective non-violent non-cooperation so examples of that would be when they were required to obtain passes to control the movement of the Indians in Transvaal and Gandhi saw that as a racist prejudiced hatred-filled policy um, first of all, they refused to get passes, but very openly and brazenly, they would not get the passes and, and try to be arrested for it. <laughs> so, so that was one way. In a second phase, Jan Smits, after a lot of them had been jailed, Jan Smits promised to him that if they sign up voluntarily for the pass system, then the full force of the so-called Black Act, the new legislation aimed against the Indian population, would not um, come into force. Um, and so everybody then, then Satyagraha mean, meant everybody signed up for the passes. Okay, so en masse, they moved, they went to the offices and said, okay, give me my pass. Um, and then Jan Smuts broke his promise and the third phase was then to, to come together in public and burn the passes with a large gesture. So they made a big fire and everybody came and they um, threw their passes into the fire. So, so on the face of it, it might seem like contradictory actions, but it was actually all the time in conversation with the government, telling them we are not going to comply with what you try to do to us here. Um, and even though, you know, it might seem as if they do contradictory things. The logic of it throughout was non-cooperation with, um, 
with a legislation that they understood as degrading them, dehumanizing them. So the act of transgressing such a dehumanizing law is the act of asserting yourself as dignified. You know, so, so you perform your dignity against the rule that tries to, to, to dehumanize you. Um, yeah, and so, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> falling, I'm, I'm constantly interrupting myself. But the, um, then uh, people started to, to send in names for this, and one person suggested something close to Satyagraha, which Gandhi liked, but then he modified it to Satyagraha. He said, um, so um, Satya means truth, but it can also mean love, and Agraha is force. So it is the force that springs from truth and love. Um, yeah, okay. Um, and that is actually, that actually comes very close to his understanding of God. So he has, this, that's his religious vision, is that there's, a, um, there's an active force working in the cosmos. Um, it's a force of pure good, benevolence, and it is keeping the human world in existence. So he gives the example where he says, if two brothers fight and they manage to overcome their animosity and they forgive one another, that is Satyagraha in action. <laughs> and that's happening all the time. People are looking after one another. They care for one another. They feel empathy and pity for one another. People build the world constantly by care and love and empathy and um, support for one another. But that is happening in the background and it is largely unnoticed. What gets noticed is the spectacular destruction of bonds and of love. And that's why he says history records the interruption of Satyagraha. So, so violence is almost, and, and then what goes down in history, um, as part of human history is all the ways in which Satyagraha um, is, is destroyed or it fails or it breaks down um, because some people are parasitic upon it. So, um, so, so that I find a very interesting view of the world, of the cosmos, that he believes that um, there's a force stronger than the force of violence upon which the force of violent destruction is um, parasitic. Um, and then you can gender it, of course. You can say, well, women are constantly building the world and <laughs> um, to destroy it spectacularly is more like the way that men get power. <laughs> but, um, but Gandhi doesn't really go into that. But, but, but yeah, so it's a, it's, a certain it's a certain spiritual ontology, I call it, an understanding of a force that is at work in the cosmos and that is actually the stronger force of the two. And that is why he aligns himself in his politics with the force of love, um, which he feels is literally the stronger force, the more transformative one. So this is really interesting to me because my, my connection to nonviolence is more through nonviolent communication, which was developed by Marcel Rosenberg. And he called nonviolent communication the language of the heart. And the whole concept is also connected to 
if you want to connect to someone in a situation of conflict and you actually want to overcome the conflict, you need to be able to connect through empathy. So you are not making evaluation or judgments because if the person feels that you empathize with how they could possibly have that opinion, they can relax and then you can build a bridge. So you cannot at all evaluate or judge. So it's also a very almost passive way of, of, of connecting where you try to make observations about what exactly is being said in the language that it's using and how it's making you feel and what requests you would like to put in so that you can connect. And it's really interesting because then that started making me think about how can, in very subtle ways of performing, I use my body to resist without creating like two sides. Mm. I'm right and you are wrong. And now we are fighting against each other because then I'm forcing someone in the opposite mm. camp. <laughs> mm. And then they kind of have to fight against me. And mm. all my actions are actually pushing them more into a side of resisting me. Mm. And then we're just constantly resisting each other. So it's really interesting how that force of love can actually very practically be seen in communication in the way that you use your language. If you are communicating from a place of empathy, people relax and they open up mm -hmm. and then you can actually find a place where you can connect and Maybe then the conflict can dissolve. That's very Gandhian. <laughs> very. <laughs> <laughs> so I see, I read um, the, the um, non-violent non um, action in response to the violence that sits in the system also as a form of communication, as a way mm. of opening up the conversation between myself and my adversary. Gandhi mm. says, I don't have enemies. <laughs> All his opponents are opponents and adversaries, but never enemies, because the route to change, the route to transformation lies in the humanity of your opponent. And that is now what you are also saying. So, yes. so because... Uh, the force of love is a cosmic principle it is latent in everybody we all partake in that love force otherwise we would not exist and we have been loved and that is why we could be humans and so you can always for Gandhi and um, some people are criticizing him and saying but what about Hitler you know as an extreme example of a person whose heart you could probably not melt but Gandhi pushes us to always think beyond our preconceived ideas of which people are unreachable, which people are um, impenetrable to the force of love. And we should push that boundary further and understand that, that, transform, that the force of love is a transformative principle and it works in everyone. And so, so Gandhi would always say, you can activate the force of love and empathy in, in every other person ultimately. And that's what Satyagraha aims to do is to, to get the other to tap into their own capacity for love. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, that's so beautiful because I was just thinking as Nicolene was speaking not before you also said, I was thinking, what is it that makes it, you know, not passive resistance, yeah. but that, uh, aggressive non-violence almost mm. um but part of that it sounds contradictory when you say something like love can be so aggressive mm. um but that is probably where the the force part comes into where you can almost imagine that counter 
because it's all in the same force, those those clashes almost, it's like a cosmic, I'm imagining like almost if in a galaxy kind of thing, if you imagine that that place where you come together and there's like a spark that comes, but you find a way of relating through the force that connects you instead of yeah. trying to push in different directions. Yeah, yeah. It is it is such a force because um in this in the scenarios that I have experienced nonviolence communication, the moment that you really connect to the true need under the person's action, which you would normally judge, if you connect to the need and they feel seen in that need, it's like the entire thing melts. Mm-hmm. It is such a force. It's amazing how it happens where you think that two people cannot at all connect with each other, and then he helps them, guide them, guide them, guide them to the moment where that love force comes in and you see, ah, their need is connection or safety or, and you can connect to that and you can say, mm-hmm. okay, you are judging mothers that get abortions because you feel that all children should be held in safety and you want your children to be safe. And then that person can open up so that their opinion can actually melt away and they can then see that you also come from a place where you want people to feel safe you just want the mothers to feel safe that get the children for example Mm -hmm. and then it's the same need just different strategies so how do we create a different strategy so that we can actually come together that's very very um close to what i think both butler and gandhi would say um so 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 you are saying something along the lines of how to get people to connect and somehow both Gandhi and Judith Butler would say, by realizing we are already connected. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there's yes. a, there's the a prior bond. We, we give birth to one another. So, so even in South Africa where the races and the classes and the sexes are all sort of in camps, you know, in, in enemy camps against one another, Maybe there, especially, we have given birth to each other, you know. We are inextricably interwoven, all of our identities, and we rely on the other to give us a sense of who we are. So, so it's as if they activate a sort of a, a certain imaginary, a certain countercultural imaginary about how we, in a prior way, you know, in a primordial way already belong together and our fates are already interwoven and how it cannot go well with one part of South African society if another part is completely neglected how our fates are tied up with one another and I think that's when we come to the application part I think that's a crucial insight that uh, these two thinkers almost push a, a coexistence a prior coexistence and a a mutual dependency, interdependency, they push it under our struggles, in under our struggles and say, we fight with each other because we are interdependent. Yeah. <laughs> and to realize the interdependence is also the way out of the conflict. Yeah, and because probably the most powerful forms of resistance is the ones that re- help remind people of that fact where you have to deal with the ways in which you are implicated with each other that you couldn't imagine. And I think here, that's also what I learned from Butler and what Butler and Gandhi kind of um, both Mm. bring to the table. But at the same time, it is hard. That's Mm. a hard thing (laughs) to, it's not like just, um, Butler reminds us that these relationships can be very difficult and there's a lot of tension there. And that's also why I like when, when Gandhi says it's, 
opponents, not adversaries, because there are mm -hmm. still, I mean, in, in cases in South Africa, if you think about recent protests, and um, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to be able for, for people to connect to that when the disparities are still so big mm. and we feel so far from each other. And that kind of brings me to the violence part of nonviolence as well and how, how Gandhi is able to, and Butler is able to think about how you understand, I guess we have to talk about how you understand violence and in opposition to nonviolence and how mm. um, this love force can help us. So how would, how do you... Mm see that part. Yeah, well, every sentence you say sparks new ideas <laughs> in my mind, uh, ways of responding. Um, but yeah, so, so it's interesting for me uh, the way in which um, they, they actually have slightly different understandings of violence. But, but let me start with Gandhi. So, so what, what really, um, in a conversation here at STIAS, I had with Christoph Heinz, who who's, who's um, recently died, but he was a human rights lawyer. He drew my attention to how Gandhi is really actually not saying nonviolence is a moral imperative, but he's saying it's a strategic imperative. He's actually turning our common sense on its head and saying, some people would say, okay, be nonviolent, and if that doesn't work, you, you become violent. You know, some, somewhat like the ANC did yeah. in, the, in 1960, they decided to take up the armed struggle because they said nonviolent resistance is not working. But that implies that violence is the greater force, the more effective thing, okay? So we overcome our moral scruples and then we take up violence as an instrument. But Gandhi turns it on its head and he says, um, nonviolence is so much better strategically than violence that you should give it everything you've got. He's not saying there's absolutely no circumstances under which violence is justified. He does discuss in his one book, Hind Swaraj, he discusses sort of extreme cases where you shoot a mad dog, you know, that is biting children, or you grab a child out of the fire. So he has examples of where physical violence is called for. So it's not a, it's not a blanket um, prohibition on violence. But he, he does think that violence is a kind of ineffectual shortcut when it comes to social transformation. He says we cannot effectively change people and that is what is needed for social transformation change people and systems if we use violent means because violence which responds to violence calls forth new violence and he sees it as a cycle and an escalation the logic of violence is to breed more violence and to legitimize violence he says if you want someone else to do something they don't want to do, and you want to force them through violence to do so, then you legitimize their attempt to do the same to you. <laughs> so, so we are stuck. <laughs> we are yeah. stuck in a bind. Um, he, he uses the image of a blind horse that walks around and around a mole and thinks that it is making progress, but it is staying in one spot. That's how he sees violent hostility. So, so he thinks that violence actually doesn't change the world. It might change who is in power. He says, if we, change, if we chase the English out of India violently, 
we will not be rid of colonialism and the English, the English civilization. We will just replace the English faces with Indian murderers. <laughs> and we will be as oppressed as we were under the English. So, I mean, and that's such a powerful message for any attempt to liberate a society, whether it's from colonial oppression or any other form of oppression. And it's interesting, I mean, Gandhi said this from a kind of a faith position, but if you look at some research that has recently been done, it's also Christoph Heinz who, who gave me the book in which this is compiled that shows violent social transformations um, after the after the transformation or the transition, the society remained very violent. There was a lot of retalia retaliatory violence, um, and there's very little respect for human rights or minority rights. But when where social transformations happened through um, civil resistance or non-violent resistance, it had a lot of um, benefits. So you can you can think for yourself in practice. A lot, um, there's much broader participation in nonviolent resistance. It's thousands of people who physically participate. Mm. The, the, the participants themselves change in the process because they discover their own strength. Um, and they, it's a positive um, circle. It's a, it's, a, it's a circle in which more and more people feel empowered to resist the, the injustice. Um, and that means that, and also because such a group typically um, gains a lot of sympathy from across the world, not just within their community, but, but across the world, they draw support from an international audience very often. And then um, because of these elements of nonviolent social transformation, the, the, the situation after the transformation is much more stable because social relations have actually changed. Um, members of the oppressor group were also won over and they, they become sympathetic to the cause and they can see the righteousness of the cause. And so the, the change effect, if you, if you can call it that, is stronger and longer lasting and more socially embedded than when you try to force, force through violence. So, so Gandhi says the the command of the oppressor only stretches up until the end of his sword. <laughs> yeah. If enough people disobey him, he's powerless. So, so what, what Gandhi also sees and, and uh, Butler also sees is for any oppressive system to remain in place, it has to be obeyed. Um, mm. You need obedient bodies, even if they are obedient out of fear. And if there is mass disobedience, the system cannot hold. So Gandhi says at one point, we should cease to play the rule. Mm. <laughs> so I, I have a, another practical art performance <laughs> input here. <laughs> yeah. um, we actually experience the, the difference in the effect of when you respond nonviolently um, say through performance art where I created these staircases that I've spoken of before on the podcast to be placed next to statues um, of um, violent uh, leaders or figures. One was Cecil John Rhodes, the other one was Yanni Mare on um, the Airway Plain. Um, and 
every time this happened, because the violence is trapped in that symbol, in that figure, and maybe supports the institution that's around it, um, people thought that the staircase was going to be another act of violence, the institution. So every time when we took the staircases to the statue, the immediate response from the institution in both cases were to stop it and destroy it. Oh, wow. And so, so the first one was the men in black was on campus at Stellenbosch mm -hmm. during Fees Must Fall and they created a human barrier in their shields and full um, black clothes and stood around this. So that image of the staircase being stopped mm -hmm. um, was very interesting. So that was the first reaction. Then the second reaction was we actually had a permit in the company gardens um, for infecting the city. And we took the staircases the day before the performance was supposed to happen and placed it in front of Cecil John Rhodes. And when I got there the morning, half an hour before my performance, it was destroyed, gone. There was wow. nothing. And then I went I to the, the, of the... Of the of the company gardens. Exactly. So the managers... Yes, the manager came to the gardens, walked past it to her office. She saw this thing. She thought it was going to be for violating this the statue or some uh, vandalism. And she gave instruction without even checking the permits. Mm. Immediately it needs to be destroyed. So then, then while, when I started the performance in the company gardens, because the, the curator then went with me and said to the manager, this, we have a permit for this and everything. They actually started rebuilding the structure while I was performing. And there were all these people around us now waiting in anticipation because they saw the violent act of destroying the statue, I mean the sculpture, and now the sculpture is being rebuilt. And then the performance was actually a little bit of an anticlimax for them. <laughs> but, the, but the energy was so different from what was trapped in the sculpture of the figure of Cecil John Rhodes, for example, mm. and the contrast of the staircase, and then this act of actually just coming in and cleansing the space, me and another woman. And the power wasn't that, that it was so different from what was expected mm. as a, a political performance. Mm. And again in Stellenbosch as well, it was just students standing around, climbing up on the staircase and looking at the Anne-Marie and maybe having a conversation, maybe making some gestures, maybe wrapping something around him. So then because there was such a difference in the, the violence that was expected, people could actually really receive it. And it resonated for longer I, in my experience. And even more people came up to me afterwards asking questions like, is something else going to happen? Is, you know, is <laughs> <laughs> is there going are you going to destroy are you going to paint are you going to, I said no this is it. <laughs> yes yeah, so just a just a, a little bit of an illustration of how nonviolence can sometimes because it has such a different energy to the violence that we have experienced maybe by an institution or the society it has a bigger effect because it's so unexpected i think sometimes yeah, that's what Gandhi also says. He um, he says when we are confronted or when we are confronted with violence, the violator expects us to either flee or fight. So they expect submission out of fear or self-defensive violence or retaliatory violence. And when we then follow a third way. <laughs> 
of resisting nonviolently, it surprises and it baffles the violator. So you change the logic mm. of what's happening there. Um, you come into a force field of violence with a diagonal direction and you are disrupting, challenging, disturbing the force field with another yeah. force, another yeah. type of force. Um, so so um, there's a guy, a theologian, Walter Wink, who um, came to South Africa in the 1980s and drawing partly inspiration from Gandhi, he also reinterpreted the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And he says, that's not how Christians have read it all along as submission. Um, actually, what Jesus said there is, and then a, a long um, exegesis where he shows turning the other cheek is actually insisting that the other treat you as an equal. Because he says, Jesus says specifically, if he, if he hits you with the right hand, then he, or, yeah, or the back of his hand, but then he hits you on the left hand side of your face, which means he dismisses you as an unequal. Um, and that turning the other cheek is actually standing up for yourself and saying to the other, if you want to confront me, confront me as an equal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's a whole new reading of the Sermon on the Mount as, a, as a, um, a, an aggressively nonviolent Jesus you know, <laughs> who, is, who is encouraging us to assert ourselves, not to submit to violence dealt to us but to act in a, in a surprising way, in yeah. a third way, in yeah. another way. I recently also heard about an example that really illustrated for me that I didn't know about before uh, in uh, well, what's now called Myanmar, but Burma. Mm. Uh, they also have like a, they had like a militaristic coup and they, um, yeah, where, I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak about all the details because I'm, I'm not sure if I know all the facts, but I heard that the, the ways in which the people started resisting because they didn't have their whole government or something that was elected was basically kidnapped mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. had to operate via Facebook, which is so weird, sure. where they were sending messages to the public. And because um, no one, none of the citizens in uh, what they would call Burma, because they changed the government, military also changed the name to Myanmar, okay. uh, could have weapons. So only the military had weapons uh, or mm -hmm. that form of physical force or mm -hmm. violence. And then they had to think about creative ways of resisting where they would everyone drive in their car to like a military gate where they have to enter and distribute things. And then they just all randomly stop and just say, oh, my car is broken down. I can't move. And if everyone just says my car is broken down, I can't move. And they had all these interesting examples or it was similar to when lock, in lockdown, when at eight o'clock at night, everyone clapped for the doctors. They also had something where at a certain time of day, everyone did some weird gesture of mm. um, hooting or making a noise or whatever. So it was, there's actually also, it's easier, I guess, in especially in resistance protests in South Africa to go look for examples where we thought violence, there, we, there was not a choice almost. Mm. Like it, it had to erupt because mm. the uh, institutional violence is so embedded that there's almost no way to counteract. But then if you actually go look between the lines there's all these examples mm -hmm. of non-violence that as you said might are proven to be more effective but they also in a way make less noise sometimes mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's important that we try and find those stories 
Yeah, yeah. But also, if I mean, if everybody resists, I mean, if protests regularly turn violent, and I'm not saying in South Africa that is the case, but you can also get the saturation point where violence no longer impresses anyone. Yeah. You know, you burn down police cars and um, municipal buildings and so on, but nobody's impressed anymore because <laughs> it happens too regularly. So the shock value is also... Yeah. Not that that effective, not or that, that strategic lasting. But just to come back not to sustainable. Yeah, not yeah. sustainable for the leaders because in, during Fees Must Fall, I was in the open forum residency where we created this uh, sculpture and we had a lot of discussions with the students that were part of this residency, which had the aim to create political pieces commenting on what was going on on campus at that point. And a lot of the people that were really at the front of the movement and had to deal with violence often when not even necessarily fees must fall was trying to become violent, but people from outside came in and kind of piggybacked on the movement and stirred things. The, the, the conversation became more around, we are tired, the people that are actually leading it. It's, it's too traumatic or it's too difficult to carry. Um, and, and therefore, a lot of them had to take time for themselves to that were very prominent in the movement to rest and actually heal first and come back to themselves before could, they could carry on again resisting. So also the, the, the sustainability for the people at the forefront of the movement when violence is involved. I think it, it sometimes it's like the curve is very sharp up and then very sharp down where non-violence can maybe be a little bit more um, yeah, sustainable in the long run. Just to come back to um, your point about how both of those um, staircases were violently destroyed by <laughs> the powers that be and was, was read as an act of violence mm -hmm. in every instance. Um, uh, Gandhi believes that if you do these things, if you're going to go in and transgress the laws, um, you must expect the system to act violently and that's why he trains his soldiers of peace to endure violence so 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 he has a keen understanding of the dialectic between structural and physical violence um the threat of physical violence backs up the structural violence and if you push the right buttons you are going to unleash the hidden latent violence of the structure because the structure tries to defend itself, and then um, I think, but 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 in a in an interesting way, then the performance of pushing those buttons and unleashing that physical violence actually performs, displays, illuminates mm -hmm. how violent the structure is, mm -hmm. so that the whole world can see it. It's no longer exactly work or yeah. anything. Yes. So many of the people around the performance, like the curators and everyone, they were actually pleased by the destruction of the staircases because even before the performance actually happened, it was just like setting the scene. We just placed the one prop there, essentially, and already the prop is destroyed. Yeah. Not even before the actual message or whatever is trying to be communicated can happen. And they said that that was the success of the piece because like you say, it, it just showed what was going on underneath. Mm -hmm. It's like just poking and then the whole mm -hmm. monster is provoked mm -hmm. and comes out fangs and fire. <laughs> That's like a very good example of how performativity even works for Butler. Of mm. Like you just put something in the realm, but then something enacted upon it on it before you even had the opportunity. But 
but you were already engaging, you know, even before you started, you you were engaging in that field of, because I think Butler also says that we are always already in the field of violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so whenever you engage with it, you need to be aware that your engagement can, it can shift and it can change and destabilize, but I'm not sure if, um, so it almost seems as where Gandhi says you're always in the force of love. <laughs> Maybe Butler has a more uh, bleak version of the, the field of violence is always present, but at the same time, it has all these opportunities for you to, to alter it. Um, and it's the same with the examples of institutional violence of how um, what, whenever we try to say something like self-defense or like when we try the examples of where people justify violence, um, like the self-defense mm -hmm. is the one example that really stood and out. State of, violence. And state violence where um, if America is just a good example of it, I guess now with Israel and Palestine as mm -hmm. well, where almost, and, and also with the Black Lives Matter, with the police violence, mm -hmm. where there's a, a violence is put upon the people who are expected to be violent as a way to try and say we, we want to be against violence. So then state violence justifies, um, is justified in that way. And Butler also has that relational thing of trying to ask, but when you say you are defending the self, who is the self that you are really defending? Who is the state that you are really mm. defending? You already assume some kind of boundary mm. between the, the oppositions or adversaries instead of um, understanding that, once again, coming back to our first point, how they are implicated already. Mm. Yeah. And, and so we're talking about Gandhi, so I feel like I can say something spiritual, but... <laughs> <laughs> the spiritual, the spiritual understanding of fragmentation also comes back to that idea that we are actually all connected and and need to need to understand that we are so relational that our identity and our existence relies on each other. But the state of fragmentation is that when we, we forgot about that mm -hmm. and we think that we live in isolation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is almost where the assumed violence or the violence that is always around comes in, where if we are in a state of fragmentation and not understanding that we are connected, we are already separated and potentially in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And then where, where Gandhi comes in, where we then remember that we're actually all connected then that state of violence is completely disrupted and irrelevant because we're not separate from each other so conflict cannot exist mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so that was just an interesting link between the two or yeah. oh, oh, as gun as Butler would put it you cannot violate the other without doing violence to yourself that's the other instinct mm -hmm. that comes from that mm -hmm. understanding of interconnectedness when you yeah Can, can I bring in an, a historical example also? Yes, please, please, <laughs> please. But your your stories about the staircases and your contemporary um, creative resistance is um, they they were very useful for me to to listen to. But I also think it's useful to remember that Gandhi did have a huge impact on the ANC in particular. So um, what we discovered when we went to Phoenix and Durban was the friendship between Gandhi and John Dube, who became the first president of the ANC. They had um, uh, neighboring farms, neighboring pieces of land, oh, wow. and they visited um, across, the, across the valley. Um, 
And Mandela said um, that the African liberation movement in South Africa is rooted in the Indian liberation movement. Um, and there are so many things that I've now picked up that resonate. So the name of the African National Congress, um, that, that idea of having a Congress, it comes from the South African Indian Congress and the Natal and uh, Transvaal Indian Congresses. <laughs> um, and it was the Indians who first organized against pass laws. Um, and that was taken up massively by black people, especially first black women in South Africa, already early in the 20th century in Bloemfontein and later in Johannesburg. Um, passes that tried to regulate their movements and that hit them very badly because they needed access to white neighborhoods to do um, char work and um, washing for the white women and so on. So it was a very important source of in income that was threatened um, by the past laws and it was really meant to regulate black women's mobility. Um, so, so, so there were huge mass non-violent protests against past laws, um, especially in the first century, uh, first half of the 20th century. But the, the really good example is the Defiance Campaign of 1952. So we all know that Jan van Riebeek landed here in 1652. <laughs> so what was it, 6 April or something? I forget my history, but <laughs> 6 April, I think, was the day when white South Africa massively celebrated the three centuries since van Riebeek landed, okay, 1952. And that was the day on which um, the defiance campaign really started <laughs> and there were massive rallies in Johannesburg, Pretoria, Port Elizabeth, Durban, East London and Cape Town and what is wonderful about this thing is that it was non-racial so it was Indian people it was under the auspices of the Indian South African Indian Congress and the ANC and some whites participated and um, it was a day, it was called, uh, yeah, the, the Defiance Campaign officially started in June 1952 and then they proclaimed a day of volunteers and people signed up to this Peace Force, <laughs> National Volunteer Corps, where they said they are now going to massively disobey the, the um, apartheid um, legislation, which came into full force, of course, after 1948. So, so earlier there were also racial discrimination and um, land um, expropriation and, and other things, but it gained got a particular pertinence under, the, of course, under the National Party and since 48. And so, what what people did was to massively um, enter spaces where they're not allowed without permits, to sit on whites only benches, to <laughs> enter into Europeans entrances to post offices and railway stations and municipal offices and so on. And this was in 1952 already and more than 8,000 people were arrested in that Ooh. time and so it very strongly resonates with what Gandhi and the Indians were doing in Transvaal um, in their resistance. And what is then interesting that flowed from this is um, it was a non-racial exercise. Thousands of people participated. They clogged basically the system. You know, the system couldn't deal with all the lawbreakers. And so it, in a sense, weakened the system. But um, as far as I know, the United Nations then recognized for the first time. Now, this is high level recognition. 
recognized that South African racial policy was an international issue and had to be investigated by them. Um, and the campaign grew stronger, the ANC grew stronger because they see how they can organize mass protests, so, so it regained confidence and then the non-racial element of the movement. And of course, all of this came to an end in 1960 after the Sharpeville massacre, where non-violent protest was met by a massacre. And, um, and then the ANC said, okay, no longer, we can no longer go the non-violent route. And I do think, I'm not blaming them, I'm not saying they were absolutely wrong, but they had so much success with the non-violent movement. Um, and we, ha we could ask some critical questions. I mean, sometimes we um, emphasize the armed struggle and sometimes we emphasize the political miracle <laughs> of how there was a bloodless revolution in South Africa, but it was a mixed thing. It was partly very violent and brutal and partly yeah. not. <laughs> um, and we, I don't think we've, we've really come to grips with that big um, paradigm shift in our history from nonviolent resistance to violent resistance. What have we gained and what have we lost by that shift? And I think we, then we largely forgot about Gandhi. Um, and people now, it's sort of common sense to think, well, it's the violence that has liberated us. So more violence will liberate us better. Um, and we've, we've really lost, a, 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 um, I think, an important dimension of the, an important ethical dimension of the early struggle movement. I don't know what you two think about yes. that. <laughs> no, I think that's fascinating to hear because maybe that that's also a bit of that um i think as as all once talked talked about the bit of a cultural amnesia or there's a there seems to be a bit of amnesia here as well where we don't often go back um or like i, I i'm not sure how much contemporary young south african protesters see the use of looking back at the way in which resistance uh, was performed mm. previously mm. Um, and there is definitely a loss there um, and I think there's definitely you can definitely see that there's in there, there's a sense of we need a new strategy mm. in South Africa at the moment mm. it feels like people are trying as you said some things are losing for the force is, is diminishing in some ways mm. and by looking at examples of these, we can definitely find new creative ways of doing it. Nicolene, what do you think? I also think that in, um, I can I can just imagine how it must feel if you have been resisting nonviolently for years and it just feels like the Institute and everything is like pressing on it. And, I, and you could see, you can see this in, um, movements that start nonviolently like contemporary movements and then all of a sudden violence comes in and I think it's that breaking point of that that human of feeling of pain and being constantly hurt by the people you are resisting and just feeling like it's so overwhelming and then feeling like it's not working because it's the opposite it's the diagonal energy so it's a strange energy it doesn't really fit into it and um, and then resorting to violence and how Gandhi can then help as someone to 
kind of support, no, just carry on and commit to it. And it is something that has worked in the past and where remembering him can actually help with that motivation. But it's very hard when you think compassionately about now, especially like Sharpville, it's children that was hurt there. I can understand the, the AMC movement being like, well, what must we do? Mm-hmm. And this is often the point where I think it's the critical point where I don't know how, when that happens, of what, what, what must we do? This absolute, an English word, but this absolute, like, not knowing what to do and then being so angry and, and frustrated. I mean, it's also a kind of natural place where anger then comes out, right? The, the ta- almost not tantrum, but, you know, like, that, that force just having to be released. So how that moment can be identified and how they can then be, um, the interception or the the holding on to people like Gandhi so that it can just continue mm-hmm. in a non-violent way. I don't know how that can yeah. actually be and prescribed. It's good that you mentioned anger now as well, because mm. I think there's um, finding ways of still, because sometimes I think people think when you say be non-violent, like that anger should fall away. And anger is obviously a very important emotion in resistance. So finding ways of the rage, mm-hmm. for the rage to stay, because in that we find we can deal with some of the underlying emotions. And it's also so tricky with all the power imbalances at play, even thinking about gender-based violence um, as, a, as a type of violence in South Africa and, and how to resist that. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to try and think of. Do you think gender-based violence, those who resisted or the ways we've resisted, hasn't really been violent? How have they maybe been violent? I'm trying to think mm-hmm. out loud now. Is there maybe a different, almost feminist way in which people have done things that's not necessarily violent? But Yeah, so, so talking about women and violence, I think that's a fascinating field, you know, it's almost as if we don't yet have access to violence. And so the ideal of nonviolence, how I see it, and maybe it's too simplistic, but women, women typically acquiesce to violence. Um, and they they flee or they submit rather than fight back. That's sort of the stereotype of the of the woman of the feminine um and they are not really seen as soldiers and they're not really seen as people who would def- will defend themselves violently so they are, they are constructed as um, soft targets mm-hmm. and for gandhi that is absolutely the worst possible way to respond to to violence <laughs> um, much better, 100% better, is to respond violently. Because the most important thing is to have courage and to, and to defend yourself. So the, the Gandhi says that in so many words. A violent resistance to violence done to you is 100% better than submitting to it. But in, 100% better than that is non-violent <laughs> <laughs> And he says you need even more courage to be a non-violent resistor than a violent resistor. So, so that's for him is the highest possible response to violence done to you. Um, so in a sense, I'm thinking in the Gandhian 
three-tiered system then, women first have to access violence. They must be willing and able to be violent before they can suspend it and be virtuous by suspending it. <laughs> if you're not willing or able, or either of the two, to, to be violent, then your non-violence doesn't, doesn't, can only mean acquiescence. So, so I think Gandhi has sort of struggled always with the way in which these virtues are gendered. So, so he worked really hard to distinguish what he means by nonviolent resistance from acquiescence or submission, because that's how many people read it. If you're not violent, you're not doing something, you don't feel strong enough, you're not taking this seriously. Mm. Um, and and he, wants to, he wants to change that logic and say, doing something but in a in a very specific way that is not violent is has the best chance to actually be effective um so so he would be very critical of a kind of a feminized um non-violence if we mean by that um being almost allergic to violence yeah yo that's an interesting yeah, and, and something that has stood out for me from this conversation is that um, nonviolent strategies requires uh, creativity because like the, in the, the initial examples, it sometimes can seem contradictory, but in every situation, it's a very creative solution to actually resist so that it, it kind of stays stuck in the um, consciousness of the people in, um, in the society. And uh, with rage, in my research with creativity, I found that if you can actually use rage, which women also not, uh, specifically in my work with creativity, I work a lot with female artists that struggle with anger and rage and feel like they need to suppress it. But actually if rage finds the channel of creativity, it's more powerful. Mm -hmm. So that rage can then be used as a tool to be creative and understood that it's not that anger and rage is not welcome. Mm -hmm. It should actually just be directed mm -hmm. into these spaces of, of nonviolence. Because if you are nonviolent, it doesn't mean that you're not angry or <laughs> upset yeah. or, or hurt. Um, so I think that also using that anger can, can be actually very good for nonviolent strategies. Yeah, I think it's again stirring our imagination around this third way, which is neither um, obedience nor violence. Yeah. We have a stunted imagination when it comes to how do I assert myself strongly non-violently. We seem to think, yeah, I think there's, a, there's almost a sense in which if you're not violent, you're not angry enough, and you're not. If you're not angry enough, you are not hurt enough. You know, as if, as if, um, social action can only come out of a of a of a um, an emotional kind of suffering. But for Gandhi, there's a there's a there's a real discipline that goes along with successful protest, successful resistance. You have to first discipline yourself. That is why his book Hinswaraj. The title means Indian self-rule, but he means it very specifically in a collective and an individual sense. Um, and, and that sort of imperative, be the change you want to see. If you, so, and I think that's where many mod, contemporary movements make a mistake, to equate um, suffering and anger with violence and violent, violent protest. Um, Gandhi says, check yourself. Um, yes. You are angry, but 
but but but how you how you channel that anger is very important um there's an anecdote about a grandchild of his a grandson who was sent to live with him in india so that gandhi could do something about his anger problem <laughs> the anger management of gandhi <laughs> And the boy threw tantrums. I don't know what age he was, but fairly young. And he had tantrums. And Gandhi said nothing. And then at one point, um, he said to his grandfather, he has problems with his anger. And the grandfather said, but anger is a great thing. I'm so glad you have it. <laughs> now let's talk about what you're going to do with it. <laughs> um, what do you ang get angry about? And what do you do about that anger? And, you know, so, so both the, um, the, um, the judgment about what is worth getting angry about and also then how to channel that anger. So, so I think we are such um, admirers of emotion. We, we, we value emotions so much as if they tell us a deep truth about ourselves. And so we sort of venerate rage and tears and... <laughs> as if they in themselves justify certain actions. But, but I think there's a big problem with that. Gandhi would say, no, you can also, you can also cultivate your anger in a, in a good way. Yeah. yeah. As, as if, uh, emotions can maybe more be understood as a navigation system that tells you, your anger tells you something needs to change. So every time you feel angry, it's a reminder that something needs to change. So in that sense, anger is a good emotion and, mm. and can be used and doesn't necessarily say anything about you as a person, but maybe more about what is happening to mm. you and around you. Mm. Yeah. And also the individual collective distinction when it comes to anger is interesting for me. I was like, how... Because um, I, I remember there's a one article of Judith Butler where the title was just Judith Butler wants us to reshape our rage. And um, I can't remember exactly what she says there, but I, I suspect it has something to do with we also need to harness the ways in which we can be like relational anger almost. Like how anger as a... Because it's easy to think about frustration and anger Yes, people feel it collectively, but to really perform that anger collectively is a different challenge than just having, I mean, your individual or in a conversation, you get angry at each other or you get angry at a system. But what does it look like when bodies are angry together um, is what I'd be interested to. That is very interesting. Yeah. Also not allowing um, the anger to turn into hatred. Um, and I think they're also both thinkers caution us um, that we don't fall into the exact we don't fall into the exact same trap as the system which um, designates some people as not worthy of grieving or not worthy of um, um, mourning mm. um, as not as not subjects that we need to take into account. Um, if we, if our resistance to an unjust system repeats that logic and we say, okay, now there are these enemies and we can call them out and we can give you their names and faces on social media <laughs> and tell you exactly who the enemy is, you are doing exactly the same thing as, as the system that you're protesting. Yeah. You are exerting a violence of your own and you... You forget about the bond that's also between you and your opponent. Um, 
so 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 Gandhi is very um, adamant about it that hatred has no place in Satyagraha, um, and he has he himself has no enemies. Uh, someone who who has faith in the force of love cannot logically have enemies. <laughs> That's how he sees it. Um, and I think Butler does a similar thing by saying. Um, if you think of defending yourself, if you justify your violence by referring to self-defense, who is part of the self and who is disqualified from having a relationship with the self? So who do you designate then as the ungrievable enemy yeah. that you may rightly kill or shoot or destroy? Um, so that, that enemy logic um, is, I think, a big problem that slips into rage very mm -hmm. often. We, we feel justified to name and to and to label certain individuals or groups as enemies. And Gandhi is wonderful in this regard, the way that he phoned up Jan Smits and said, listen, Boyke, we're coming to Pretoria now and we are going to do a mass action on your, on your, on your doorstep. Um, do you want to discuss it now or shall we discuss it when we are there? <laughs> He was always in a in such a deep conversation with his opponents that they almost and sometimes even did become friends, you know. And he said, "You have to always distinguish between the system and the individual. This we're going to change the system by changing the important individuals. We're going to change their hearts about this thing." Um, so, 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 so he's amazing for how he managed to to have ongoing conversations and insist on those humanizing conversations with his opponents and, and never turn them into enemies, ne never giving up on them. And I think that's really something yeah. we have forgotten. Maybe I can ask um, the two of you to say something about how should we think about social transformation now? I think we all agree that there's a lot of change that needs to happen on a systems level. Um, mm -hmm. um, how, how should we think about going about transforming society? If you don't have the political power, um, and as I see it, the, the ruling party is so separate separated from the people that it's supposed to rule you know i was thinking in the shower this morning that's where i get all my good ideas <laughs> <laughs> that there was this um, slogan of making the country ungovernable but at the moment we are an ungoverned country you know there's there's just all these gaps between healthcare and and what's happening on the you know between the government and the people and the systems on the ground there's just a complete disconnect so the country is essentially ungoverned mm. um, so so and in the place where social inequality and violence is absolutely pervasive why do we how do we think about using a gandhian butlerian lens to think about what how should we intervene now in south africa now yeah, for some reason, the, the first thing, and I think uh, I suspect, Nicolene, you might also want to speak to this, but definitely thinking more along the lines of the kinds of strategies that we invoke and something like art or performance art or, I mean, turning to those type of interventions. But 
at the same time, I'm, I think there's, I don't know, the, the word discipline is like a trigger word for me. Like I feel like when, when, when Gandhi says yeah. it, it has to be strategic and disciplined and thoughtful mm. at the same time, having the conversation, the relation or all of that in mm. the back of your mind, I think it's easy, it's easy for me to just go to kind of Butler's way of thinking of, but then losing grip of that, realizing that it's a disciplined act. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how, I, I struggle to see how we can, because discipline as such, if you just, I think of the army and like the power dynamics that comes with, who is the one suggesting the discipline? Is it enforced? How do you, how do you, how do we find more equal and compassionate ways of deciding to be disciplined together um, in mass mass action? Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that's not a solution, but I do think that that's something that this conversation gave me to think mm-hmm. about a bit more. It's like, what, what would those strategic ways of mm-hmm. coming together, what could they look like with Bundy, Butler and Gandhi? They're a couple names. <laughs> yeah i i absolutely agree with the um idea of the mediums of art and performance i think because it um it's sometimes it's so pre-verbal that you can really stretch across so many groups of, of people being able to relate and understand what you're trying to communicate but i think in our era conversations conversations because we're constantly framing ourselves and coming from Jan and I constantly, every time we talk, we're like, okay, so this is again where we're coming from and kind of more and more understanding our Afrikaner dorm and, and the spaces we have access to. I think at the moment, for me, it's really important to use the spaces that I have access to and to disrupt those spaces compassionately and to understand that um, if I'm going to judge everyone in my community because I want to be as alternative and as, as removed from the Afrikaner space as possible, I'm doing the opposite of what, what Gandhi and, and what Marcel Rosenberg with Nonviolent Communication is trying to encourage us to do, which is to bridge the gap by being compassionate and by understanding how can I speak to the needs of the people in my groups that I'm not um, agreeing with in a way that they can actually also come over to the other side and join the group that is resisting the system at the moment so that we are not as separated um, anymore. So I think really going into the enclaves and into the spaces that you have access to and disrupt them with consciousness and with compassion um, as much as possible. And maybe also in, a, in an abstract way, we, we, we really, on um, we we we're, um, we're so used to using language mm. um, to, to try and um, kind of convince people with logic, but action, it mm. seems like when you said the, the practice of the concept comes before speaking about it. Mm. So really trying to embody these understandings of Satyagra and, and really seeing how that it's not just something that you can speak about, but something that you can actually practice and, and, and bring into the spaces. And then from there, maybe try to speak about it. Because something in nonviolent communication that also I became aware of, it's now loud here, sorry. <laughs> yeah, very domestic with COVID, but please, the arid listeners must just know this is the way that it is. Um, 
uh, is that that language, um, especially the English language, is really rooted in, in evaluation and in comparison. And in comparison and evaluation, that is where compassion and connection actually falls apart. So to know sometimes that the way that you choose the words that you're using when you're speaking to someone that you're trying to convince, in quotes, to come to your side, um, can actually push them away. So to try to find a way that can actually bring you closer to each other, um, maybe not through language or very consciously choosing your language. Yeah. What I hear from you is exactly, again, that balance between relating, not breaking the bond, yet transforming the mm. situation. And it's a, it's a tricky one, but that's, that runs through, through Bundy's work. <laughs> <laughs> Constant intervention is the last mm. one that I wanted to say. Constant intervention. And I think that that's where the discipline comes in again. And I mean, in the Eastern philosophy and in practices like yoga and the kind of other things that Gandhi used to do, discipline, takes a completely different format than we understand it, I think, in the Western um, realm of, of like being in school and being disciplined. And like Jana says, who chooses the discipline? I think it's a self-discipline mm. of like kind of um, identifying with what, what you want to do and then to see it as a, an everyday consistent practice. Mm. And that is, that is discipline. Mm. So to me, it's constant intervention in spaces in a nonviolent way, but I'm constantly going to show up in places and just assert, insert myself there and be like, here I am. Mm. And again, and again, mm. and again, no matter how many times they destroy the staircase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so if I can give two responses to that, obviously we can short, shorten this <laughs> long discussion, but it's, it's, it's so much fun. Um, the idea of self-discipline. So, so when, um, when the very first resistance happened um, to the Black Act or the um, foreseen Black Act in, in Transvaal, the Indian community gathered together in an old theater complex and um, somebody proposed that they swear an oath so um, that everyone there swear their allegiance to the cause and that they are going to stick with this thing until they have um, overcome the, the Black Act. And then um, Gandhi actually made a whole speech there about how important it is to decide only for yourself and not to be caught up in a mob mentality. And he says, um, everyone must think for themselves and take this as a, as a full personal responsibility upon themselves, that even if everybody else folds, they will carry on. <laughs> you know? So he, he placed a lot of emphasis on personal integrity. And he also gives examples of free riders and op opportunistic people who joined the movement got something out of the movement and faded away <laughs> again so it, you know it happens i think in every social movement but there was this shared understanding that everyone has to be self-disciplined in this um, and then i see now the day of the pledge you remember i said there was a day of the volunteers in 1952 mm. also with the defiance campaign the last, the last section of the oath which they signed or the pledge which they promised is I shall, it shall be my duty to keep myself physically, mentally and morally fit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this very interesting idea of um, if you want to change the world, you have to change yourself. <laughs> you know, that really old cliche of Gandhi. Um, but that you 
have to work on yourself um, so that you can be better um, aligned with this love force than you would normally be. Because Gandhi understood that the temptation to violence is in all of us. And um, Butler also works that out. And she says precisely these bonds that tie us to one another, that make us dependent on one another, is also the source of hatred and aggression and violence. Um, nobody is pure in that sense, but if we want to if we want to keep on fighting and also that sustainability thing if we, if we want to not just make one splash and be spectacular but do the hard work of over time eroding systems and pushing them in new ways it takes time and it takes endurance and for that you need a certain self-discipline and that's also what i think is a limitation of um satyagraha it takes time yeah. and maybe you know if you don't do it if you don't do it early enough and um, consistently enough, you might end up in a position where you no longer have a choice to be nonviolent, but you have to do something violent. And for Gandhi, that is the, the extreme exception. But you know, we might end up there if we are not, if we do not use the time we have available to to do this erosive, constant action. I mean, I think it took him six years of concerted non-violent resistance to finally get rid of the black act in Transvaal. You know, it's not an overnight thing. Yeah. <laughs> it really is not. You, you need time and you must take time and you must make time to do it. That's why he said he only found time to write while he was in prison. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was too busy organizing when he was outside of prison, but Almost all of his books were written in the times that he was in prison. It gave him some space in which to <laughs> think about what he's done. The theory part. Sure. Um, I think there's something very profound about that. Um, and trying to think of ways that working on yourself and working and as an individual isn't necessarily a isolated thing. It's no. not like you are doing it alone, but it mm. is something that... Um, I haven't really heard social contemporary social movements, you know, even if you think about with ally with the allyship stuff where they we found all these moral and ethical reasons and rules and principles that you should follow in sometimes very prescriptive ways. So you do find on social media because I'm trying to think even in the age of social media how that would look what that would look like. And um so there are movements that give directions almost of like homework that you must mm. do before you pitch up mm. you must interrogate your own like check yourself is basically mm. a slogan that says mm. or do the work we mm. is an expectation mm. in in assemblies for people to do that but i haven't really heard it directed in such a with a underlying gandhian mm. principle of no. um, which i think is more relational and will solve some of those problems that we have when it, we just say it's a one's off individual ethical principle and then that stops the conversation so yeah you're i think also that i think also that um the the idea of self-love is sometimes not seen as um uh, it's sometimes maybe seen as a, a, a selfish act to, to now invest in when you're in the middle of a protest or in the middle of time to to take time to connect to 
loving yourself in order for you to be able to love others. Because I do believe that that's the way that it works. Like you can't come from a place of not loving yourself. And just from a personal perspective, um, when I started accepting and loving the parts of me that long ago had not unintegrated terrible thoughts because of the house that I grew up in with the family that I had and could acknowledge that I did have when I was younger racist thoughts and sexist thoughts because I was young and didn't know that 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 was wrong or not wrong um, and then went through a process of kind of rejecting that and pushing it completely away from me and not wanting to look at the, that part of me from long ago at all I couldn't really relate to the people around me that did have uh, racist and sexist and all that kind of thought so to accept that sometimes we have um, blind spots and to love that part also with consciousness and to try and integrate them into our understanding and into the discipline and really like Jana said check yourself mm -hmm. and that can then make you more compassionate to other people and also I think bridge the gap again um, yeah, so that self-love can is not a selfish act when you're in the middle of a process. It's actually really, really necessary and mm. um, to go look at all the parts of yourself so that you can be honest with who you are and show up in your wholeness. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. So look, Foucault talks of care of the self as the most important form of resisting all the forces that try to shape us to serve the system. Mm. Care of the self as a kind of a praxis it's it's really looking after yourself in a practical way and gandhi i think his self-care was very much centered on these rituals and disciplines you know that he would um, eat in a certain way every morning he would get up very early and spin cloth for an hour <laughs> he did it religiously whether he was on the salt march or whether he was busy fighting british imperialism he would spin first because he said um, it's important to work with your hands. It's important for your soul. It's an important part of being yourself and, and ruling yourself. And, and he, at the same time, encouraged the Indians to throw all the British imported clothes on bonfires and burn them. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the specific disciplines that he chose are very interesting. Um, walking was a, was a thing um, from... from um, Tolstoy Farm in Johannesburg, I think it's 21 kilometers. He said, if you have business in Johannesburg, business of the ashram, you can go by third class train and sit with the black people specifically. But if, you, if it's not for business, if it's for fun, you walk to Joburg. <laughs> so people get up at two o'clock in the morning, walk all the way to the city, spend some time there, walk back at night. So see these disciplines that he built in, when he was living in when he was in india for some time he lived again as as i've said before lived with the viceroy the, of india the british governor of india in his house while he was fighting him and they became very good friends and um something would happen in world politics and the viceroy would say bring gandhi to me i want to know what gandhi says about this and they bring him in and Gandhi stands there and the guy blows his top and he says, what, 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 what has happened? What has happened? And Gandhi just stands there and then he says, Shh. and then he, the guy realizes it's his day of um, silence. <laughs> answer him tomorrow. <laughs> so that's the profound expression yeah. of self-care, right? Yeah. Right there, we get so sweet up in everything that's wrong in the world and 
we lose our center because um, we feel we must be everywhere at the same time. And 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 Gandhi really just opened up these um, spaces and and times to to look after his own soul, as it were. <laughs> no. Very profound. Thank you so much. There's so much to think of now, and also kind of like integrate into praxis and to, and to practice in in our lives yeah thank you thank no, you to thank both you. of you it was great to um bounce my ideas <laughs> back and to and to also hear from your perspective as an artist nicoline and from your butler knowledge <laughs> yana and your experience with student protests it's fascinating to think these things through in contemporary yeah. life yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure listeners will also be able to help brainstorm even further mm. with this new understanding of self-care and yeah. not just the putting on a face mask, but really thinking <laughs> through <laughs> what does self-care and mm. um, non-violent resistance mean today. Mm.